Well, it's good to be with you all today. Uh, if we haven't met, my name's Phil, the lead pastor here, and uh, grateful that you have set apart this time to come and to be in community, to worship, uh, to stand under the Word of God together. This past Wednesday, we finished up our series on the book of 1 John at our Ash Wednesday service, and uh, if you weren't able to make it out, that sermon is posted online, and uh, you can uh, finish up uh, that series if you've been following along. But today, we're transitioning into a new series through the season of Lent. We're going to go back now into the Gospel of John and look at the seven I Am statements of Jesus Seven times in the Gospel of John, Jesus uses a different phrase or metaphor to define himself. And uh, the reason I, I want to zero in and, and meditate on these texts during this season of Lent are, are, are twofold. The, the first reason is uh, this section of Scripture allows us to hear Jesus in his own words. In our first John series, we were talking a lot about discernment and how there are many competing images and pictures of Jesus that are floating around in our world, and there are many contested ideas. Sometimes we have inherited a distorted picture of Jesus that has been manufactured to fit our particular tastes or agendas. Sometimes we have uh, taken on a tainted view of Jesus, uh, a view that's been tainted by the behavior of Christians that so often fail to live fully into the Christian message. And so it's important for us, I believe, to return to the Gospels often. And at least once a year, I want to do a really intensive series through the Gospels so that we can have Jesus tell us who he is so that we can hear Jesus in his own word, words. I think this is, helps with our discernment process. And my prayer is that through this series, God would continue to expand, to clarify, and heal our picture of God. But the second reason why I think this is really timely during this season of Lent is because these passages of Scripture speak to how Jesus answers the deep longings of the human heart. Jesus meets us in our searching and our longing and points us, I believe, towards a deeper fulfillment. Now, Lent is often a season that is framed as a time of rigid moralism, and we talked about this a little bit on Wednesday evening. Uh, sometimes we have this history of going into the Lent, trying to empower our willpower, try to give up the things of this world and just clench our fists and grit our teeth and get through it. <laughs> And as we have probably experienced, that approach to spiritual formation doesn't work very well for us. I uh, reference on Wednesday, just a quick review, uh, the testimony of a lady named Leslie Jameson who talks about her journey out of addiction, and, and she writes this, when I applied willpower to my drinking, the only thing I felt was that I was turning my life into a small, joyless, clenched fist. And perhaps you've experienced that. Maybe that's been your picture of the spiritual journey, that this is just hard work. But as we noted in 1 John 5 on Wednesday, John pictures for us an approach to discipleship that is not burdensome, that does not have to be burdensome, but can be liberating and life-giving. And that happens when we reframe this picture of the spiritual journey. The key, you see, is not simply to remove the various idols in our lives that we are attached to. What we need to do is replace them. We need to allow God to fill those places of longing 
to, to replace those false idols with this true living bread from heaven that I believe really fills our lives and our need. Lent is not just about giving things up. It's about making room for God to take up residence in our life. And my hope is that as we work through these I am statements, we're going to see how God wants to speak into and fill those deep longings that we, we have as human beings. Well, this is where we pick up our scene today. Uh, the first I am statement is embedded in a conversation with people that are searching and seeking something more. Uh, the people that Jesus engages in conversation in the scene are the same people that participated in his miraculous feeding of the 5,000, which took place earlier in chapter 6. There was something about that experience that captured their attention. And so uh, in this part of John chapter 6, they are searching. They're trying to find Jesus. They are looking for him. And when they finally locate him and find him, this is what Jesus says. Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. These people are hungering and thirsting, but they are looking to Jesus for the wrong reasons, or for a limited reasons. They are seeking physical sustenance alone when Jesus wants to offer them so much more. St. Augustine comments on this text saying, many follow Christ for loaves, not love. And Jesus wants to fill them more fully with this bread of life. <clears throat> now, to be clear, Jesus cares about our physical well-being. When he is tempted in the desert, he is tempted to turn stones into bread. And notice that he, said, he does not say, we do not live on bread at all. <laughs> he says, we do not live on bread alone. Right? God knows we are embodied beings. We need physical sustenance. And as we noted in, in the letter of 1 John, uh, we are, ought not to think that everything in creation is evil and just to kind of pursue this disembodied spiritual life. Creation is good, and God gives us these good gifts. The problem is when we turn these good gifts into ultimate gifts. Jesus calls us beyond a purely materialistic quest. He warns against a life that is unilaterally animated by a quest for the things of this world that ultimately perish and come up short. This creation is good, and God gives us wonderful gifts, but we turn them into idols when we take a good thing, and we turn it into our ultimate source of security, or hope, or joy. This harkens back, echoes Jesus' teaching in Matthew 6, where he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Friends, this begs an important question that I invite you to meditate on today. Where are we filling our life with things that do not truly satisfy where are we working for that which ultimately perishes? 
the psychologist David Myers has written just a really important observation in his book, The Pursuit of Happiness. I've referenced this before, but I just want to keep coming back to this. So interesting that he's just noticed in data points that once people's basic needs are met, the correlation between wealth and well-being just flatlines. So that first amount of money is important, right? We need to be able to sustain ourselves and, and meet our basic needs. But after that point, the more we have does not translate into more happiness. In fact, sometimes excess leads to unhappiness. One just needs to see the whatever weekly story it is of a celebrity who's ruined their lives, right? One of the great ironies of our time is that while we live in a time and a context of great excess, we seem to be as unhappy as ever. In American culture, we have the highest GDP in the world. We consume more than anybody else. And yet, when you look at the world happiness scale, which actually marks other uh, measures of well-being, like community connection and feelings of contentment and social ties, America is actually fairly low on that list. Consumption does not translate into happiness. And I just, I just wonder where you can trace that in your own story, if there's times where you've been bumping up regularly with a persistent emptiness, where some of the things that you have worked for, put your hope in, have come up short. Well, this is a groundbreaking idea, and I, I feel like I've talked about this a lot, and when I first read this text, I was kind of uninspired. I'm like, all right, Phil, you've already preached this sermon. This is kind of like the greatest hits here. We're just circling around a theme. This isn't brand new, right? We know this stuff. And it almost feels a little bit cliche to say it yet again. The things of this world uh, leave us empty. But here's the, the problem. We know this. But we're still going back to these things regularly, aren't we? Our lived experience is not caught up to our knowledge in this regard. We're deeply oriented towards the things of this world. And so we need to come back to this teaching often and engage uh, these scriptures regularly. You know, last night after uh, we finished up our funeral here, I took our kids to Boomer's, just a little public service announcement. Boomer is Boomuary, where you can get any burger for $3.50, even the big boom, you know, the big expensive one. And so we, we thought we'd have one more attempt at this, and uh, I got the big boom. It was fantastic, french fries, chocolate shake, the whole thing. And this is just the metaphor, right? Like, I know this is terrible, and I feel terrible after, and right after we finish, we're just like, oh, you know, what have we done? What have we done? <laughs> and, and that's the human experience. We know it intellectually, but we're just so oriented to these things that perish and leave us empty. And here's the irony. After I added this to my sermon and edited my notes, I went and got the rest of the chocolate milkshake out of the freezer and finished it. So even after I wrote the sentence, right, I'm just going back to the old things, right? So this is our story. We keep returning to the bread that does not fill, that, that causes us to perish, <laughs> right? And the reality is, is that the, the promises of these worlds, they play to our disordered desires, and they are reinforced by our culture, right? This is what we talked about in 1 John. It's the, the deception of the evil one plays on our disordered human flesh, and it's reinforced by the world. And so we're just being marketed this fast food spiritual diet, and we turn to it. So we need to confront this. We need to come back to this idea. Graciously, <clears throat> 
God often allows us to experience moments where we feel the emptiness of the things of this world. And maybe you've felt that emptiness recently. Uh, this, I encountered this yesterday during our service for Norm Jost. There's something about the reality of death that causes us to reflect on the meaning of life. It kind of interrupts our illusion of immortality and our preoccupation with the mundane. And as I just heard all these beautiful testimonies of Norm's life, uh, how he was a man who walked humbly with God and, and loved people well, I just had this deep longing to, to come back to that desiring that I would live a life like that. Yeah, pay attention to those moments. I think sometimes there's a gift in those feelings of longing, those feelings of emptiness. God often tries to get our attention. And here's the good news. When we experience that longing for something more, when we seek out Jesus, he receives us in grace and mercy. And he engages these seekers in our scene who are hungering and thirsting for more. And he says this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. <clears throat> I am the bread of life. I just want to reflect for a moment on what, what Jesus means by this. What does he mean as he talks about being the bread of life? Now, the context of this particular bread sermon, the sermon that Jesus is giving, is important um, as we study the I am statements, one of the commentators I was reading said we need to make sure we go bigger and older with these texts. We might be tempted to just zero in on these, these one-line sentences, but we need to go bigger, and by bigger, we need to place these sentences in the broader context of what Jesus is teaching. And we need to go older by looking at the whole arc of Scripture and seeing how this connects to the Old Testament narrative that, that Jesus is seeking to fulfill and bring to completion. And when you go bigger and older with this text, you discover that Jesus sees himself here as fulfilling and bringing about a bigger exodus. This is Exodus 2.0 that is happening as Jesus understands his mission in this world. And so we see this first in this language of I am. Jesus here is appropriating the language of God in the Exodus story. When Moses asked God, what shall I tell the people your name is? He says, I am. Who I am. Jesus is aligning himself with the God of Exodus. And then as he engages in this conversation with these hungry people, they bring up the story of Moses, and, and Jesus calls them deeper. And so he says in verse 32 and 33, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus goes on to talk about how his death and resurrection will bring about this ultimate exodus. Exodus from the enslavement we feel from sin. Exodus from the loneliness we feel of not being loved. An exodus into the life that is truly life. And then Jesus becomes just very clear at the end of the sermon where he talks about how his bread, this bread of life is his flesh given for the world. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If everyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. 
We notice just the more expansive view of Exodus, this now encompasses the whole world. It's an ex- extended uh, invitation to you. We have here the, the heart of the gospel message that God has provided what we truly need for liberation and life as we put our faith in his sacrificial death and resurrection. That's what Jesus is talking about here, but the, the, the question I want to end with today is this question of how do we access this bread? How do we access this? How do we fill our lives with the provision of Christ himself? I find it really interesting that in response to Jesus' description of this bread, the, these first listeners initially respond by asking, what do we need to do? Did you hear their question? What must we do to do the work God requires? Is that not our default response? That's our cultural narrative. You've got to just earn your keep. You've got to work your way up. You've got to provide for yourself. And so that's just so deeply ingrained. And they say, what do I got to do, Jesus? What must I do to do the work God requires? And, and Jesus responds by flipping the script. And he says in our text that our work is actually simply to come and to trust not to strive, not to earn, not to prove your worthiness. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever trusts in me will never be thirsty. Martin Luther has this great line about how Jesus is both the baker and the server and the provider of the bread and the bread himself. Like God is the one doing the work. And our invitation is to come and to trust. Dale Bruner points out uh, just something really interesting in the Greek that this verb come is actually a a present active participle for all the Greek nerds out here. Here's the point. It should be translated the person who is coming to me. It evokes a continual action. Those who don't just come once, but the person who is coming continually will be filled. This isn't uh, just a one-time transaction. We do not pray for our monthly bread, our yearly bread, right? It's our daily bread. And so Dale Bruner, commenting on this translation point, says, how do we get to the bread of life? Answer, just come and come and come again. There's an invitation for us to come and to trust, to humbly acknowledge uh, that we need God's help. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to strive. We don't have to prove that we are worthy enough. God is ready to bestow this gift on us. We simply just need to humbly come and trust. This is evoking language, and this is linking back to a beautiful passage in Isaiah 55, where we read this, "'Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters.'" And you who have no money, come, buy meat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. Friends, today I just want to extend this invitation to you to come Buy and eat without cost. Do not labor for that which will not satisfy and leave you empty. Come and trust, and your soul will delight 
and the richest affair. <clears throat> I was thinking about a story about a man named John Dow. This is a, a picture of John. And uh, he was in a documentary that follows the experience of a group of Sudanese refugees who received the chance to come to America. It's a fascinating film, as you just document, uh, who were called the Lost Boys of Sudan. And uh, they came out of this refugee camp where they had lived for years, and they're just like encountering America for the first time. And it's so interesting to see our culture through their lenses, through their, their eyes. And they're so disoriented <laughs> by this world. They, they never even looked at themselves in a mirror before. All these things were just new to them. And there's one moment where there's an interview with John Dow at Christmas time. It's his first Christmas in America, and they're interviewing him as he's at a mall in, like, middle America, somewhere in the Midwest. And he's just observing. He's like, what is, like, who's Santa? Like, what's all going on? And he notices that in our country, Christmas is all about excess and all about consumerism. And there's something about that dissonance, that juxtaposition of his experience of our culture that just opens our eyes to our cultural reality. He says this, here in America, you have so many things to celebrate Christmas, but in Kakuma camp, we had Jesus Christ born in our hearts. <laughs> and it, it, there's this beautiful moment where the filmmaker pans away from this somewhat depressing scene of a mall at Christmas time, and people are just rushing around, with their shopping bags, and it pans into the scene at Christmas Eve at Kakuma Camp, and people are dancing and celebrating, and they're filled with joy. Now, John Dow recognizes just the bleakness of the refugee experience. He's devoted his life to human rights and drawing people out of poverty. There's by no means a, a glorification of poverty, right? But he says on Christmas, though, he was missing his countrymen. He was missing the deeper hope he experienced when Jesus Christ was born in their hearts. <laughs> and so I just pray that even right now here, we might turn back to this God who wants to fill us anew with this living bread that brings that deeper joy, that deeper hope, that deeper security, that we would not work for that the food that perishes and fill ourselves with the things that come up short and leave us empty. My hope is that God might even meet us here and now in this place, in our longings, in our emptiness. Because here's what I want to leave you with, friends. The scriptures remind us that God is not just the great I was. He's not just the great I will be. He is the great I am. Do you notice the present tense? And I trust that God is even here in the present tense, in our moment, desiring to fill you afresh with this living bread. So let us now come, come to the waters, come to the table, and allow God to fill you anew with the bread of life. I think it's fitting that we can now come to the table. I invite Adria to lead us through our time of communion.